Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we're going to continue to look at the essentials of the faith. And it is the third essential of the faith that we're going to look at. We've been doing this now for, well, this will be the ninth message in this series in regards to essentials of the faith. It'll be the third essential of the faith. So we've looked at the adage that we are to have unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. That was the adage. And then we actually got into looking at our statement of faith. And there is nine statements, eight or nine statements that we're going to be looking at. We're in the third one, which speaks of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read the essential of the faith, and then we're going to look at two portions of it this morning. The third essential of the faith. One Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work and substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. So that is the third statement of the essentials of the faith. We affirm this to be true. This morning we're going to look at Christ's substitutionary death and his bodily resurrection. I probably should have left this message for Easter, which is coming in a few weeks, but we cannot say too much or too often about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at this same topic twice within a month. This is the most glorious of all the glorious doctrines of the Christian faith, in my opinion. This truth, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is central to our faith. It is pivotal. From beginning of time until eternity future, no doctrine will be as relevant as these doctrines and as powerful as these doctrines are. I want you to grasp that this morning. We are saying in looking at the essentials of faith what we affirm to be true. Jesus Christ died in my place. Substitutionary death. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is so much more than an affirmation. Yes, we affirm them to be true. We are united in these truths, these two particularly. But it is so much more than an affirmation because of what is accomplished in these two truths. This is relevant and powerful. There are not enough adjectives in the world to describe this. The truth of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. It is fundamental, it is paramount, it is primary, it is preeminent in all doctrines. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you do not get these doctrines right, you will not get any doctrines right. It's not ones that matter eternally. If you do not come to understand and have applied to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you will have no union with God, no forgiveness of sins, no reconciliation by the blood of Christ. It is essential. We're going to start with reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This passage is what is known in biblical interpretation as the full-mentioned principle on the resurrection. For each major theme of the word of God, there is a passage or passages 
which provide an in-depth examination of that theme. Nowhere is that more clear than here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It does also refer to substitutionary death in this passage, but we will draw on other passages as we consider that topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read from verse 1 to 5, and then verse 12 to 26. Moreover, brethren, Paul speaking, the church in Corinth, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. We'll skip down to verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's, At his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. We affirm the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The key thought in regards to substitutionary death in this passage is summed up in verse 3, where it says, Christ died for our sins. Paul says that 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 truth, that statement, is foremost in the divine revelation that he has received and the divine revelation that he has preached. He is saying this is central, this is pivotal, this is foremost, this is the first element of the gospel. This is the truth which the church in Corinth and every believer since received and in which we stand. This is the truth that the church in Corinth and every believer since is saved in. This is the truth which we hold fast. This is the cornerstone of salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, specifically the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. But what exactly is that? What does substitutionary death actually mean? Well, literally, it means the death of someone in the place of another, which makes sense. Oxford Dictionary defines substitution as the action of replacing someone or something with another person or thing. We use the term substitute for a wide variety of things. A sweetener that isn't sugar is a substitute. Pepsi is a poor substitute for Coke. Margarine is a substitute for butter. Squash in a recipe is a substitute of something that tastes good for something that tastes bland. We understand substitution one way or another. But the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is in a category all of its own. 
we have perhaps heard illustrations of one person laying down their life for another in a war, but that is a rare exception. And even that doesn't really compare to this type of substitution, this substitution that Christ died for us. Often when we hear the phrase, Christ died for us, or substitutionary death, we think that Christ died to pay for my sin, which is true. We think he died for me in the sense that his, uh, his sacrifice was to purchase my freedom, which is true. His sacrifice was to reconcile me to God, which is true. His sacrifice was on my behalf. And that's, a, that's a phrase that we would use when we say Christ died for me. It was on my behalf. It was to my benefit. And that is absolutely true. But the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ goes beyond that. His sacrifice wasn't just for my benefit. It wasn't just on my behalf. It was in my place. His death was the substitute for my death. Mankind, all of us, are born with inherent sin, separated from God and condemned to eternal death. This sin was passed on from Adam. That is what is called inherent sin or the sin nature. Every person ever born, except Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, but every other person ever born is born dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians tells us. We are also actual sinners. Not do we have just inherent sin, we have actual sin. In the sense that the inherent sin permeated to our very beings and expressed itself out. So we are involved in sin, disobeying God's commands. We are in rebellion against the sovereign Lord of all. We miss the mark of God's standard of holiness. We are a broken and a wretched people in who we are and in what we do. And the sentence against us for this sin is eternal separation from God. The sentence against us for this sin is damnation. The sentence for us because of this sin is hell. We are damned eternally, every person ever born. That is our standing naturally, normally. That is the judgment against us. Now, I have said the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is in a category all of its own, and that is the reason why it is in a category of all of its own. Any type of substitution we can think of generally is a comparable substitute. Otherwise, we wouldn't substitute it. But the death of Jesus Christ in my place, it is an incomparable substitution. It is not apples for oranges or apples for apples. It is the sinless, perfect, innocent, spotless Lamb of God slain in the place of this guilty, wretched, condemned sinner. That is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Do you see the wonder and awe of that? We all have to die because of our sin. That is, you are sentenced to eternal separation from God, the one you were created to be in eternal relationship with. You're sentenced because of that sin. But the righteous one of God, Jesus Christ, intervened and said, no, I will stand in your place. I will take your rightful punishment. I will bear the wrath of God that you deserve. I will die so that you do not have to. Substitutionary death. Listen to these verses that affirm this truth. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. We're commanded to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. 
Galatians 1, 3-5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Titus chapter 2, verse 11-14. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And the last one I'll give you in regards to substitutionary death, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That phrase right there describes the substitution that took place. The just one died for the unjust one. He gave himself. The Father sent him as the substitutionary sacrifice. And even there we may not grasp it fully, but it has been accomplished. And consider the implications of that substitutionary sacrifice. In stepping in as the substitute, he took my condemnation. In stepping in as a substitute, he took my judgment. In stepping in as the substitute, my sin was applied to him and executed upon him. It's what is known as imputation. My guilt was imputed or accredited, placed on his account and he suffered and died for it. For he made him who knew no sin, that is, God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. My sin imputed to him. That is, Christ became the sacrifice for sin. He was not guilty. He was spotless and innocent, yet he took my sin upon himself. Every sin I have committed, every sin I will commit, he received my stamp of guilt upon him. Think about that for a moment. Because with each sin, there is condemnation. With each sin, there is a stamp of guilt. And if we were to look at each other and could see the stamps of guilt that should be upon us this morning, we would see nothing but guilt. But praise God, the stamps that were meant for me have been placed upon him. And he has borne the punishment for them. Substitutionary sacrifice. But there is another imputation that also took place through that substitutionary sacrifice, his righteousness has been imputed. It has been applied to the believing sinner. The end of that verse that I just wrote, uh, read there, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin, God the Father made Jesus Christ who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And it goes on, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The believer has had the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to their life, or imputed to him or her. In the substitutionary death of Christ, we have received substitutionary righteousness. And that is complete and full. If you are trusting him for salvation, and Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that we are justified by faith, then that means you've been made right, you've been made without sin. How? By your own deeds? No. But by the righteousness of Jesus Christ being credited to you. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his 
flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He has granted you your sin for his righteousness. And so in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die in our place so that we might be, or so that he might be righteous in dealing with sin while at the same time providing his own righteousness to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes, If you believe in Jesus, that is to say, if you trust him, all the merits of Jesus are your merits. They are imputed to you. All the sufferings of Jesus are your sufferings. Every one of his merits is imputed to you. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. He in your stead, you in his stead. Substitution, that is the word. Christ, the substitute for sinners. Christ, standing for men and bearing the thunderbolts of the divine opposition to all sin. He being made sin for us who knew no sin. Man standing in Christ's place and receiving the sunlight of divine favor instead of Christ. We affirm the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And we don't just affirm it. We rest in it. We glory in it. We exalt his name for it. It is a wondrous doctrine. The righteous plan of God declaring guilty sinners innocent is accomplished in Christ's substitutionary death. Our salvation is secured and God is glorified. We also affirm Christ's bodily resurrection. This is the second half of the same work of God's work of salvation. The resurrection completes the work of the substitutionary sacrifice. Going back into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the gospel, the good news we have heard in which we are saved is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This once again is foremost thing. It is the foremost thing. It would be incomplete and ineffectual without the resurrection. That is the whole point of the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And listen to the way that the argument is presented. It starts in verse 12. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. Well, that's a fairly straightforward statement. If there's no such thing, then Christ didn't rise. Paul, remember, is refuting a false belief here. But he continues with that argument. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be absolutely no point in preaching the gospel. There is no good news without the the resurrection. It is empty and hollow and pointless, and your faith is the same without the resurrection. Empty and pointless and hollow, if Christ is not risen. And on and on, uh, Paul goes here. Without the resurrection, he says, we would be false witnesses. Without Christ's resurrection, there's no hope for our resurrection. Without Christ's resurrection, your faith is futile. Without the resurrection, we would have hope only in this life, in verse 19, which he says is most pitiable. The picture being painted here is that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are lost. It states that very clearly in verse 17. Without the resurrection, you are still in your sins. But I thought the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ covered that. Well, it did. But the resurrection proves God's acceptance of the substitutionary death. The resurrection declared that the Lamb of God was worthy to take away the sins of the world. The resurrection declared that the wrath of God had been fully satisfied in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The resurrection declared that Christ has a power and authority to justify those who believe. The resurrection showed God's work of imputing sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to the believing sinner. The resurrection proved that the blood of Christ is greater than the blood of goats and rams from the Old Testament. The blood of Jesus Christ is greater. The resurrection proved this. 
But note the words that I have just used there, declared, proved, and showed. This is the testimony that is given by the resurrection. It is what the resurrection said of Jesus Christ and of God and of the plan of salvation. But there are great things beyond the testimony in what the resurrection actually accomplishes. It is awesome in what it declares, but it is even more awesome in what has been done through it. The resurrection brought life, and the resurrection brought hope. In verse 20, we have this glorious statement after Paul has exhausted the arguments against the resurrection. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Christ did rise and he brought resurrection life to all those who believe in him. It wasn't just that he settled the books or zeroed everything out in the substitutionary death. The substitutionary death of Christ neutralized things in that sense, but the resurrection power of Christ is infinitely greater than that. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, life rises, true and abundant life in Christ, and hope rises for today and eternally as well. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to his abundant mercy, begotten us again to a living hope. He has made us alive in Jesus Christ. And it is a present living hope. Yes, there are future aspects about it, which he goes on talking about their inheritance. But now by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all those who believe in him are made alive. He grants life, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And we are to live in that resurrection life. As we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, life and hope comes through the resurrection. Life because he has begotten us again. Hope because he has begotten us again to a living hope and also to a future hope. Christ is, it says, the first fruits. In other words, he is the representative of that which is to come. He is the one in whom it is a reality first, symbolizing the fulfillment that will be accomplished in all those who trust him. He is the surety or promise of our resurrection and I'm going to cut it a little bit short there, but I would encourage you, spend some time in the rest of First Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can't help but get caught up in this. This idea that this corrupt will take on, will, will be made incorruptible. This mortal will be made immortal. This physical will be made spiritual. This temporal will be made everlasting. The wonder that Christ will accomplish that he has officially accomplished, but will in us accomplish through the resurrection, is is mind-numbing. And it's not just a theoretical thing. I've been wrestling with, and, and I, I know that many of us wrestle on a regular basis with the tension in our life between my appetite for sin and the Holy Spirit's appetite within me for holiness. Did you know that there's coming a day when that tension will be removed? Not just the fact that this body will be made new, which means the aches and pains and the struggles that we have physically or emotionally or mentally. Not only that they will be removed, that it will be made new, that he will make all things new in the wonder of the resurrection. But not just that, the fact that he will remove sin. He will remove my desire for sin. Right now, we have been set free from the power of sin. That is, in Jesus Christ, we do not need to sin. When we do, it's our own choice. But there is coming a day when not only will we be set free from that power, we will be set free from the very presence of it. And every tension in our life because of sin will be removed. Not a single struggle ever again 
with examining what is right and what is wrong and why I want to do what is wrong instead of what I want to do, why I want to do what is right. We talk about the implications of the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The implications are profound and powerful and, as I said, mind-numbing, that he will take this. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's going to take you and he's going to make you new. And so what is our response to that? We delight. We delight in it. And, and just so that I don't leave you thinking that it's all just future, he has, by his resurrection power, enabled you now to live victorious over sin. It's not just for what he's going to do in you then. He has given us life, abundant life. He has empowered us and enabled us by his Holy Spirit to live pleasing to him, to become slaves of righteousness rather than slaves of sin, to serve him, to love him, to adore him, to rejoice in him, to praise him, to proclaim him, to celebrate him together, to be enraptured in Jesus Christ. He has enabled us here and now because of the resurrection power to be what he has designed us and equipped us to be, what he has made you to be, that which points to him. That was accomplished. The accomplishment of that was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These two doctrines, we've talked about the fact that we are united around the essentials. Not only do these unite us, but they are so so incredibly awesome that I think that as we f- would focus on them, we would lose the attraction to be divided over the things that don't matter. We've said an awful lot about what we need to focus on and what we need to be drawn to and, and consider and and how, yes, there are points where we will disagree and how points we need to have love in all things and there's liberty and yet there's unity in essentials. But isn't it so much simpler just to go back to what is central? the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and be so enraptured with it that our lives would be enmeshed with it, would be entwined with it, would radiate it, would speak of it, would boast of it, would glory in it. And all those other things, aren't they going to be redundant? To a certain degree, so many of the cares that we have made irrelevant because we are caught up in the wonder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to die for sinners. Jesus Christ, that you willingly humbled yourself, took upon yourself the form of a man, and in that humility went all the way to the cross, not just to buy us back from sin, but in our place, that you died so that I do not have to experience eternal death. We thank you, and we we are in awe of your sacrifice. We thank you that the grave could not contain you. Death did not defeat you. You rose in victory and in your resurrection. You have assured that all those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will one day be made new, that we also will be resurrected. And as First John tells us, that we will be made like you, for we shall see you as you are. And so we rejoice. We recognize as well that you have made us alive now that you have empowered us to live pleasing to you. And we ask that you would continue, and thank you that you will continue to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that you would draw us to yourself and enable us as you forgive us. We come to you in confession and you forgive us. You enable us to live pleasing, that we would not be drawn to sin, that we would not be swayed by sin, that we would 
both be content and be delighted to be slaves of righteousness for Jesus Christ. Accomplish that revolutionary work in us, causing us to reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive to Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.